They went through all the wreckage and, and such. They determined that a man by the name of Cody Horn, 28-year-old, believe it or not, you might find that hard to believe when you hear what he did, thought it would be fun to get a 1998 Yamaha golf cart, somehow tie it to another car, to the back of another car, uh, with a garden hose, apparently, uh, and they have no idea who was driving the other car, but he decided it would be fun to be in the uh, golf cart, uh, I guess, surfing behind the car as he was towed along. Well, as you can imagine, uh, the golf cart eventually lost control, crossed the yellow line, and ended up meeting a 2000 Ford F550 truck. And the, what you would expect happened, happened. And we'll just leave it at that. Um, and it's one of those situations when you hear something like that, you're thinking, okay, would he not realize this is probably not a good idea? And there's, I mean, we all have probably countless stories uh, like that of, of just bizarre things, foolish things that people do. Uh, in fact, uh, just this week, I think uh, Rich had posted a video clip of a guy taking a selfie at a gun range. And he thought at first, hey, wouldn't it be great to take a selfie here with this pistol in my hand constantly pointing at my chest? That's foolish enough. And for whatever reason, he decided, hey, wouldn't it be even more fun to take a selfie of me pointing a gun at the guy next to him uh, pointing it at his head, and thankfully a range officer uh, tackled the guy before anything, uh, any more harm was done. Reminds me of a, my second most favorite scene from The Magnificent Seven, and I'm talking about the original one. I heard there was a, another one made, but uh, my second most favorite scene, if you want to know the first, you'll have to come ask me later. My second most favorite scene is when Steve McQueen uh, just tells this story. He says, I knew a guy uh, down in El Paso who took off all his clothes, jumped into a cactus, and rolled around. And Eli Wallace, who's listening to the story, says, why do you do that? And Steve McQueen says, yeah. I asked him the same question. And he said, it seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> well, this psalm of David uh, might not be able to explain why, necessarily why a specific individual would drive a golf cart into oncoming traffic or even jump into a cactus, but it does help to give an understanding of what, uh, what makes us tick, so to speak. Uh, it's, it's an interesting psalm in, in several ways. It, it's clearly identified as a psalm of David. There's no indication as to the occasion that he wrote it. And there's been a lot of speculation. Some think, well, maybe he wrote this when he was on the run being chased by Saul. Um, maybe it's later in his life when he's being chased by his son, uh, Absalom. Uh, we're not really given any indication. And quite honestly, it doesn't really need a context because it's so universal, as, as we'll see as we go through it. Um, but there are a couple of interesting aspects of this psalm right off the bat that are good to know. 
for one, it's written less like a psalm and more of a prophetic utterance. Uh, we'll see when we get into the opening. Mo many of the psalms, of course, start off directly addressing God. And in this case, it's more declaring uh, the state of things. And so it's a reminder to us that the psalms are certainly a critical component of worship in that they help bring, bring us to the throne to give praise and adoration before the Lord. But the psalms also always have an instructional component. Uh, we're meant to think as we go through worship. We're not meant to just mindlessly say the same things over and over again without really giving thought to uh, what, what is being said, what is being taught. The Lord, of course, wants his worshipers to worship him in spirit and in truth. Another interesting aspect of Psalm 14 is that it's duplicated later in the Psalter. As far as I know, it's the only time this happens where you have the same psalm repeated. And I'm talking about Psalm 53. And it's almost word for word. There's a couple of places. There's a line or two added in Psalm 53. But for the most part, it's exactly the same. So many, most commentaries, when they uh, talk about Psalm 14, they talk about Psalm 53 as well. We're not even really sure why. Uh, we, we just don't know why, uh, as, as over time, the Psalter, all 150 psalms were put together, why they added this. Maybe, maybe they had 149 and 150 sounded like more of a round number, so they just picked a, a psalm at random. I'd like to think that's probably not how the Holy Spirit worked it. But we do know that God put this together. And if God says it twice, we need to pay double special attention. So let's look at how this uh, psalm starts. As I said, it doesn't start declaring praise to God uh, or, or blessings to God. It starts instead on focusing not on God at all. Uh, it says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now, we're used to thinking of that word fool uh, almost as one who is silly or does sort of outlandish things to get attention maybe. Maybe we think of slapstick comedy, someone not that smart or oafish, maybe like Homer Simpson or uh, Clark Griswold or someone like that. Or maybe when you hear the word fool, you think of uh, the Middle Ages and the court jester you know, who was there to entertain the court and juggle balls and tell jokes and harmless enough, just there as an entertainer. Well, as we see, when the Bible refers to a fool, it's not comedy that's being invoked, uh, other than maybe a dark uh, comedy. It's instead tragic. The, the fool is uh, one, as we see over and over again in Proverbs, the fool is not just someone who's silly, doesn't know better, but it's someone who is uh, willfully disobedient, willfully uh, turning against his fellow man, uh, one who gets together with others and says, hey, let's, let's lay, in, lay in wait and attack this, the, the next person we see. Uh, we see this description over and over again, uh, especially in the book of Proverbs, but elsewhere as well. But the key characteristic of the fool, before anything else, is this disbelief in God. 
In, in fact, the uh, translation smooths it out by saying that the fool has said, there is no God. It's not even that, uh, that declarative. It's just, no God. Almost like someone pouting. No God, no God. Go away, no God. And it's interesting to note that this is not Yahweh, right? If you, you notice, it's written as God, not as Lord in all caps. And, and so the Hebrew term here is Elohim, which is a more generic term. Uh, so we have to ask ourselves, who, who exactly is David referring to here? Uh, this person, these people who do not believe in God, just a generic God. Well, we don't really know of a nation or a people group that were atheists at the time of David. Uh, in fact, it's maybe hard for us to to put ourselves in that after a couple of hundred years of enlightenment, where you know, we've had the rise of Marxism and other philosophies uh, here in the West, we're kind of used to thinking of atheism as being sort of a common belief system that's popularly embraced, but it's a relatively new phenomenon in, in human history. If you think about all that uh, David uh, and the Israelites encountered during, uh, during his day, uh, there, were, there were Baal worshipers, there were all sorts of, of cultures that worshipped various gods. And so the idea that, there were, uh, that David is maybe talking about an ardent atheist uh, who's going out in the street corners or, or giving lectures or talks or you know, the, the philosopher um, that is preaching atheism, that's not really the picture that he's giving here. Instead, uh, he's talking about something different. He's, notice, he says that the fool is not necessarily declaring with his mouth, no God. He's saying instead, in his heart. And this makes it maybe a little bit more, uh, more significant because it's not so much that we can look out there, oh, we're talking about those, you know, those silly atheists, you know, and um, yeah, of course, they're, they're foolish. He's talking about something different. And this reminds us of Isaiah. In Isaiah 29, he says, The Lord said, Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but I have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men. Therefore, behold, I will again do a marvelous work among this people. For the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hidden. In other words, uh, you can have, you can honor God with your lips, but your hearts be far removed from him. And of course, Jesus said uh, very much the same thing. In fact, he, he quotes Isaiah at one point, and he says, but the things that which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they are what defiles a man. For out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. So it's the heart, it's, it's the, the center of our soul out of which this disbelief in God uh, comes from. And this is ultimately what David's getting at. And in fact, there's another use of Elohim. It's not just a generic term for God, but it means Almighty God. It, it's, it's referring to God as a powerful being, as a ruler, as one who rules over heaven and earth. And yet, 
the fool not affirming that there is a God who rules over heaven and earth and by extension doesn't rule over me, they have become corrupt, David says, continuing in verse 1. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. So the root of all corruption, all abominable works, the lack of good in anyone's life is the same. At that moment, that person, you, me, we're saying there is no God who will rule over me. C.S. Lewis in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, as he describes throughout that whole book the struggle that he goes through uh, as he moves from being an atheist to a theist, he, as one who believes in God, he saw it very clearly what the problem was. The problem wasn't a belief in God. It was more, um, well, I'll just let him, him say it. He says, but of course, what mattered most of all this is the reason why, what mattered for why he was uh, kept fighting against um, this notion that there is a God. He says, what mattered most of all was my deep-seated hatred of authority, my monstrous individualism, my lawlessness. No word in my vocabulary expressed deeper hatred than the word interference. But Christianity placed at the center what then seemed to me a transcendental interferer. He's talking about God, that God's an, the ultimate interferer. If its picture were true, then no sort of treaty with reality could ever be possible. There was no region, even in the innermost depth of one's soul, nay, there least of all, which one could surround with a barbed wire fence and guard with a notice, no admittance. And that was what I wanted, says Lewis. Some area, however small, of which I could say to all other beings, this is my business and mine only. I think that sums up pretty well the, the notion of godlessness. One can perhaps profess a, a belief in God, even uh, mentally assent to a belief in God, but it's ultimately the heart that acts in rebellion towards God that is um, what's being described here. And to be honest, if we were left with just this one verse and Psalm 14 was one verse long, we'd be in a pretty depressing state. It would be just a simple reminder that we're all fools left to our own devices, whatever we please, ultimately living our lives trapped in our own selfish world, making things up as we go along. And this is a real key uh, idea to, to, to realize. This verse isn't simply describing the professional atheist. By professional atheist, I mean people like you know, Frederick Nietzsche who preached God is dead, Karl Marx, religion is the opiate of the masses, Richard Dawkins that uh, proclaims belief in the delusion of God is an insanity brought about by a mind virus, uh, or his buddy Christopher Hitchens, belief in God is a poison in our society, or even Ayn Rand uh, who said that belief in God is a myth that is detrimental to human life. They're actually, in one sense, they're the, the brave ones who are willing to, to admit it and speak it out loud, uh, these atheists, these professional atheists. But this also applies equally to countless non-atheists. Remember the Athenians of Paul's day, 
who built an altar with the inscription, inscription to the unknown God. Paul said, you're so religious, just in case you, you built a monument to a God that you don't even know, just in case, because you don't want to upset him. Uh, it includes the most religious of Hindu gurus who teaches that all paths lead to salvation. Or the inspirational cat poster that tells us, just believe. Or the entertainer who tells her adoring fans, just follow your heart. Or practically any politician who's seeking the religious vote, whose civic prayers may as well start with, to whom it may concern. This verse summarizes our sad condition, that our hearts are far from God. This is why Paul quotes it. It's foundational to his theology and to his teaching. Uh, I'm actually going to turn over to Romans 1 uh, because it, it's, it bears hearing because Paul unpacks so well what, what David is, is getting at in verse 1 here. Uh, in Romans 1, uh, chapter, or chapter 1, verses 18 and following, uh, Paul says this, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against un, un, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, in other words, everyone, Paul is saying everyone, knows that there is a God, they did not glorify him, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. The problem is not a belief problem. It's not an intellect problem. It's not just the idea that, well, somebody's got a different notion, that all of us, Paul says, know that there is a God somewhere deep in our hearts, and yet uh, we also turn against him. We rebel, uh, uh, rebel against him. Professing to be wise, Paul says in verse 22, they became fools. Same ideas as David. The, they become fools, saying there is no God. And they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. So, uh, just so that uh, Paul's audience isn't confused, he goes on, later in, in Romans 3. I'm going to jump ahead there. Because it would be easy to say, oh yeah, you're talking about all those pagans, you know, the Egyptians and, and the Greeks that worship Zeus, and, and that's, that's who uh, Paul's talking about. But Paul actually goes on to say it's not just the, the Gentiles. It wasn't just the pagans, but it was the Jews as, as well of his day. So in Romans 3, uh, starting in verse 9, he says, what then? Are we, meaning uh, those who were uh, Jewish by birth, are we better than they? Not at all. For we have been previously charged, both Jews and Greeks, that all are under sin. As it is written, and here he quotes David, there is none righteous, no, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. And he goes on further to quote more of the Psalms. He says, Their throat is an open tomb, with their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poisons of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. 
There is no fear of God before their eyes. <clears throat> Gee, Paul, tell us what you really think uh, about us. Uh, he, he goes on a little later to say, there is no difference. All have sinned. All, everybody, has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. So yeah, if we just had just this notion, just this one verse and, and all these thoughts, it would be pretty uh, depressing. We'd never be able to look past our own nose. We'd be in total despair. We, we'd be trapped. But thankfully, David's just getting started. So the psalm really gets going in verse 2. And it's really interesting how David structured this. He starts off with the fool out there kind of on his own. There is no God, and hey, look at me. I'm doing all these things the way I want to do them. And suddenly, entering upon the stage in verse 2 is the Lord. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. It's very interesting. You have the fool kind of wrapped up in his own world, and now you have uh, not just a God, Elohim, but you have the Lord, Yahweh, uh, the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth, looking down from heaven. Notice the language. He looks down. He looks at the children of men. Uh, this is intentionally condescending language. Okay, fool, you say there is no God. Well, guess what? Where have we seen this before? This is actually, we've seen this multiple times, right? There's uh, Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. The people thought they were so smart that they would get together and build a tower going up to, to heaven. And this is Genesis 11, verse 4 and 5. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heaven. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. But the Lord came down, so he's coming down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. We see a, a similar idea a little later on in Genesis 18, where the Lord comes and meets with Abram, remember, and after a meal, uh, he, he's standing there and he says, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against the, that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So we see these instances where things get uh, so bad, it's almost as if God's saying, okay, you're going to make me get up, right? You're going to make me come down there, aren't you? Uh, and, and see what's going on. You know, knock some skulls around, maybe. Uh, but this isn't just reserved for, um, for uh, the, the Gentiles or, or whomever. This includes God's own people. Uh, remember in uh, Exodus 32, when Moses went up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, he was up there for a while. And it tells us, when the people saw that Moses delayed uh, coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as this, for this Moses, the man who brought us out, out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So while Moses is busy getting the Ten Commandments and, and all the, the laws that come out of that, they get busy trying to break every single one of them as, as fast as they could. And the Lord says to Moses, Go, get down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Same language that David uses. They have turned aside quickly 
out of the way which I commanded them. So what we see here is a unique opportunity. The psalm gives an outsider's perspective on what goes on on the human heart. It gives us an outsider's perspective of what somebody who's not human sees of us, namely the Lord God. We get to see it from his perspective. And spoiler alert, it doesn't look too pretty. This is much in the same way that we see, we just uh, uh, heard uh, recently, that when Jesus went ashore, he saw a great cloud and he had compassion on them because they were like a sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. This is an opportunity for us to see what a holy, all-knowing, all-seeing God sees when he looks at us, when he looks into our hearts. So let's, let's take a, a quick look through each of these, these verses here to see how does God see us? How does, not how do we see ourselves, but how does God see us? Well, the very first thing we see in verse three is, uh, David says, they have all turned aside. And this is actually a term that is akin to someone going down a path, right? You go one way, somebody else is gonna turn and go another way. And this idea of going down the wrong path and, and turning away from the path that God would have them do is, is really just harkens back all the way to the very beginning. In uh, Genesis 3, remember after Adam and Eve sinned, the very first words they heard from God after they sinned was a question. Remember, they were in hiding. And God asks, where are you? That's a very interesting question. Now, does that mean that suddenly, because uh, they ate of the fruit, that they became invisible? Does it mean that God simply couldn't see them, that somehow he was now limited uh, in his ability to see them? No, of course not. He wasn't ignorant of their condition. The question wasn't for him. The question was for them. Adam, Eve, where are you? What, where are you going? Where, where have you gone? What is the path that you're going down? And it's the, the, same, the same idea, the, this notion of turning aside. Where are you going? Why are you going down the path that leads to destruction? And in turning aside, David says that together they have become corrupt. Now, this is a very interesting word because it's the word that's often used for something that gets ruined or destroyed, marred, uh, maybe spoiled or rotten. You know, anyone uh, has ever experienced uh, you know, drinking some milk maybe that has gone a little bad and you're immediately, your first reaction is, oh, I, oh there's something wrong with this. And your next reaction is to go to the ne nearest person. Here, try this. I don't know why we do that, but it's the fall, I guess. Um, but it's, it's that very notion that, that we become filthy, that when we turn away, we've become rotten and decaying. And that's an interesting question that, that I thought as I was reading this. Did Adam smell different after the fall? I mean, we know as part of the curse, he was cursed with sweat, right? which implies maybe he didn't sweat before. I mean, body odor, I guess, is an effect of the fall, maybe. But we know that, that Paul tells us 
that God alone has immortality. So to the immortal God, does Adam now smell like death? Do we smell dead? Paul continuously refers, in fact, to unregenerate people as those who are perishing. And we're constantly reminded of our mortality. I don't have to tell any of us this. I mean, just this past week, as yet another hurricane goes through, they, they still haven't found all the bodies yet uh, there in Florida. And uh, at any given moment, there was uh, probably the most uh, heart-wrenching story I heard out of this latest hurricane was a father, ironically, in Florida whose kids were on falls break, and so they had gone to stay at his parents' house. They went to stay at the grandparents' house in, in Georgia. And he kept calling every 15 minutes, are you guys okay, are you guys okay, are you guys okay? And eventually, he couldn't get up with them. And a little while later, there was a phone call, very static, he could barely understand it was his son, couldn't hear what he was saying, but he could hear that he was crying. And eventually he learned that his daughter had been uh, struck in the head with a pole and died, just like that. From the moment we're conceived, the clock starts ticking. That's the case for all of us. None of us escape this. Job reminds us, man who is born of woman is a few days and a full of trouble. He comes forth like a flower and fades away. He flees like a shadow and does not continue. The teacher in Ecclesiastes tells us, Ecclesiastes 6, For who knows what is good for man in life? All the, the days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow, who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun? And we know that uh, David himself reflected on this in many, many psalms. One that comes to mind is Psalm 31. He says, Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am in trouble. My eyes waste away with grief, yes, my soul and my body. For my life is spent with grief and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. The reality of death mars all that we do. Everything we do is temporary. It falls apart. It turns to dust eventually. Reminds me of the, the poem Ozymandias. Many of us probably had to learn this in school. It describes a traveler who com comes upon two vast and trunkless legs of stones standing in the desert. And near them, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command. And on the pedestal of this giant monument, the words appear, My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty in despair. Now, the irony of this is, here this king thought he was so great, he would build this, this massive statue out in the desert, and all that's left are his feet. And this statement that really mocks him. Indeed, we should look on his words in despair because all of us, like he, eventually turn to sand, turn to dust. So moving on, though, not only are we burdened by, by death, we're also constantly, uh, as, as David says, there's none who does good, no, not one. And this doesn't mean that People are always looting and pillaging, and, and we're always doing all these terrible things. And yet, human history it seems like it's one, you move from one war to the next to the next. Uh, and we, we look at instances where civilization collapses, um, like what's going on in, 
in uh, Venezuela and, and um, what's happened in other times and places. And things can get pretty dark pretty quick. And this also doesn't mean that a godless person can't show compassion from time to time, right? Obviously, there are people, you know, uh, the most ardent atheists who, who still love their parents or love their children. And the fact of the matter is, even that stands as a witness that they have the capacity to do good. We all have the capacity to do good, and yet, for some reason, we don't. Even our best actions often are marred by mixed motives, sense of self-pride. And not only that, David says, have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge. So here, he's again uh, pointing out that it's not just uh, a heart problem, but it ultimately does manifest itself in a misunderstanding or, or a lack of understanding or a lack of knowledge. And again, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 18. Or I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. He says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. And Paul asks this, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. So, uh, and he goes on a little later, he says, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, does that mean that if you don't believe in God that you're somehow dumb? I mean, aren't there smart atheists who... Uh, you know, can perform these really complicated equations and come up with all these great technologies? Of course. There's all sorts of amazing things that, that one can do, but in one sense that makes their folly all the more tragic because it's not really about smarts that we're talking about here. It's about wisdom, which, of course, Proverbs tells us that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the, of the Lord, and it's the fool that lacks understanding. Because without knowledge of God, or maybe a better way to put it, without acknowledging God, you can't truly know anything else. How can you have as your starting point anything other than the true starting point of reality, which is the one that created God? I mean, if you have any other doubts about what it's like when you have uh, supposedly wise people get together for the idea of passing along knowledge, just look at the contemporary university. And that will show you right now. I mean, unless you have a burning desire to get a degree in bitterness studies that will ultimately, well, it won't get you a job, other than maybe working at a university, teaching the next generation about um, all these things, there's, there's really uh, not much uh, to be said for the modern uh, university. When, when people get together, uh, it becomes very... Um, self-affirming and, and sort of groupthink kicks in. But this is, this is what happens uh, when we turn aside, our understanding becomes darkened. But beyond that, it's not just we have a, a poor understanding of things or, or a, a bad understanding of things. We get destructive. Here he says, who eat up my people as they eat bread. 
and do not call on the Lord. In other words, he says that these workers of iniquity, they eat up my people as they eat bread. Now, is he talking literally cannibalism, like actually eating people? Most likely not. But we do, uh, there is the tendency to consume and take away from uh, people uh, and to uh, destroy people's lives. Uh, we can think of Pharaoh, right, who, when he was first confronted about uh, oppressing God's people, he said, fine, I'll make them work even harder. And eventually um, said that to his own ruin. Or King Herod, who ended up uh, slaughtering um, all the, the, the boys to and under in his attempt to find Jesus. Or Nero. Or there's many modern-day martyrs. It's interesting when you look at things like, for instance, the French Revolution or, or actually the Reign of Terror that came in after that. Here, humanity had reached its most enlightened period where uh, we were finally wrestled free from the tyranny of all this dark superstition and, and religious mumbo-jumbo. Uh, the mob stormed the cathedrals, destroying as many of the religious icons as they could and even put up uh, statues to the goddess of reason and rationality. Uh, this ultimately ushered in the reign of terror, which saw many of those same uh, people in those mobs uh, arrested, over 300,000 people in Paris and, and surrounding. And of those, 10,000 died in prison and 16,000 were executed, many of them by uh, drowning or by having their heads cut off. Or, of course, tens of millions of people who've died under various communist regimes just in the past century. Um, and you know, history is replete over and over again with uh, all of these instances where a, a turning away ultimately can, can get destructive. So, this, uh, so in these verses, we get a sense of what God's picture of us is being, could be at times. Um, you know, what are we to do with that? You know, the godly person understands and acknowledges it. He understands that he's trapped. David certainly did this when he was confronted face-to-face -face with his own sins, something which I'm sure we'll be um, hearing more about in the upcoming weeks. Um, but when he was confronted by Nathan about his particular sin with Bathsheba, he, he wrote uh, Psalm 51. And in it he says, For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Isaiah, when he was given a glimpse of God's glory there in the temple, his response was to fall down and say, Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And Paul, of course, understood this as well. Uh, we, had been going, we had been talking about Romans, and he actually spends the entire six chapters of the letters of Roman describing exactly what godlessness is and the how it exists and the struggle of sin that wages war in each and every human heart. And he ultimately brings it back to himself. And you know, famously in Romans 7, uh, he has this to say. Uh, he says, for what am, I, 
What I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will, do, will to do, that I do not practice, but what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good, but now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Uh, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For the will is present, present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. And he, actually, he goes on like this several times saying, I, I, I do what I don't want to do, and I don't want to do what I do, and I just, I'm constantly struggling. And, and he says, I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. Uh, for I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And for the believer, this should be our cry. When we see what we are before a holy and righteous God, this should be our cry. Oh, wretched person that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? It's interesting to me, as I, I was re- reflecting on this, I, I, I didn't in any way intend this to be a Halloween-themed uh, sermon, but it's interesting how much uh, in the next few weeks we're going to see darkness, a lot of emphasis on dark themes, and people have skeletons and things in the yard, and there's lots of horror movies that come out. And it's interesting, especially right now in this this time, uh, our culture's current obsession with all these dark things, but especially uh, zombies. I mean, things like The Walking Dead is, I I don't know, I think it's still on, Uh, but it's... um, you know, highly popular show. And what is, what is it all about? It's about dead, dead people walking around, rotting people with a complete lack of understanding, seeking to devour the few remaining survivors who are trying to make a world a better place. Sound familiar? I mean, essentially it's a, it's a, a very uh, fuzzy impression of exactly what David's saying here. This is our condition. Um, we not, might not be literal corpses walking around, but we are walking around consuming, devouring each other uh, with a lack of understanding. I mean, does this sound far-fetched? Well, actually, John Calvin was the one that made me think of this. In his commentary on this, uh, this psalm, he says, "'And were we not harder than stones, our horror at the wickedness which prevails in the world would make the hair of our hair, the hair of our head to stand on end, seeing God exhibits to us in his own person such a testimony of the detestation which, which he regards it. In other words, if we could actually see ourselves the way God sees us, it would chill us to the core. It would be worse. It would be far more terrifying than any horror movie or TV show. It would be far more terrifying. And in fact, he quotes Micah 3. Uh, he says, the prophet says, Hear now, O heads of Jacob, and you rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice, you who hate good and love evil, who strip the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who also eat the flesh of my people, flay their skin from there, break their bones and chop them in pieces? I mean, this is... Yeah, I'll, I'll stop there. He goes on, but I'll, I'll just stop there. I mean, it's, it's terrifying stuff. It's chilling stuff. This is why we need reminders like Psalm 14 to, 
to get us to look outside of ourselves and get a reflection from God's perspective. This is who we truly are. So we do come to the stage where we ask, oh, wretched people, wretched me, who will deliver me from this body of death? But with Paul, we can say, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He says, now, even despite all this, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, according to the spirit. And that's the hope that David has as well. And um, I, I need to, to, to wrap up here. Uh, he says this, there they are in great fear, meaning those who oppose God, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord brings back the captivity of his people. He did. He did. That's what Christ is. Christ is that salvation that came out of Zion to bring us back from the captivity of our own sin, of our own death. Every single thing gets reversed in Christ. We get understanding. We get uh, brought on the right path. We're brought from death to life. We're, we're given the ability, the power to actually do good consistently. And we um, are allowed and given the ability to not just uh, devour each other, but to lift each other up and edify each other. That's the hope of the gospel. And I realize this has been a kind of a dark, depressing uh, sermon. I, I warned Christina this was probably going to be very depressing and such. But, um, but let us not uh, lose heart, because ultimately, if we can get through the darkness and understand uh, all the more sweeter what salvation is. I mean, think of those who experienced that first Passover, who still remembered just the horrific... Uh, this, the, the screams of house to house as um, the, the firstborn child was taken, um, who saw the, the fear of the Egyptians as they walked out of Egypt. Uh, imagine the joy of their deliverance. Even David himself, as he defeated Goliath and so many other enemies. All of these, or, or Esther, at the time of Esther with, with Haman and what, what happened with him, all of these cases were struggles of life and death. Uh, someone ultimately had to die, uh, and it, it was that serious. And yet, thankfully, we have Christ who is willing to take upon himself that sacrifice to ultimately rescue us, to redeem his people. So what's, how do we respond? After we've acknowledged, uh, as I said before, acknowledged our sin, we accept the salvation. We, we go behind Christ in his train and uh, as he leads us out of captivity. And as he says, we rejoice and we be glad. Let us pray. <clears throat> Lord God, it is sobering at times to look in the pages of the scriptures. Uh, it, it's not easy sometimes to look at things, uh, especially look at ourselves, look at the world around us uh, from your perspective. Uh, we'd rather be comfortable and, and um, just go on with our day. And yet, Lord, we ask that you will um, bring us ever more to a clear understanding of how you 
not only how you see things, but how you would like to see things become. Lord, we thank you that the story doesn't end here, that Satan uh, has not triumphed, sin has not triumphed, death has not triumphed, that all of these are being pushed back and that we, your people, have the privilege and the opportunity to, to expand your kingdom, a kingdom of light and of life and eternal life. And Lord, we ask that throughout uh, the remainder of our days that you, we, will, um, we will mark the time not in despair or fear or discouragement, but rather thankful and appreciative for every moment that you give us. And may we use them, each of those precious uh, minutes and seconds for your sake and for your glory. And I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.